Professor Russell, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, of course. Happy to be here. Why don't we start with your background? Where'd you start off? What have you done so far in your career? And what are you doing now? Yeah, so I currently am an assistant professor of public policy here at the Martin School for Public Policy Administration at the University of Kentucky. Um, but uh, my route here is actually one of a story of journalism in in the sense that I thought I was going to go to D.C. and be the next Capitol reporter. I did stints at National Journal and CQ Quarterly. Um, but then it turns out uh, that the things that I thought were really interesting were too niche for CQ and roll call. And so I probably should go to academia. And so I did. Um, so after a stint at the University of Texas, um, uh, that led me here to the University of Kentucky, where I tell people always I am a trained political scientist working in a public policy school that studies um, political and policy information. Um, so it's really my work and my trajectory to this point is thinking about um, sort of the intersection between politics, policy, and communication, and sort of what that looks like in a digital space and how that's changed uh, over time. So what, what brought you into this area to begin with, you know, whether it was journalism or Congress as a, or politics in general? Um, so I grew up in a uh, political and academic household, and so part of that was natural. Um, but I was also the the young person that thought it was a great idea in eighth grade to write their own abridged version of the Constitution because that's what the cool kids did, I guess. Um, but so it's sort of always been inherent to what the kinds of things I'm interested in. Um, and the questions that I'm always interested in are not just what are people doing, what is individual behavior, but how do they talk about that behavior and how do they message around that behavior? And oftentimes we tell our students how you say something is just as important as what you say. And I think the same is, is true for Congress. So when you were a journalist, what kind of things did you, you know, what did you cover at the time? How long were you there? You know, which, which yeah. chamber did you interact with? All that stuff. Yeah. So uh, I did stints at a number of different places. Um, I did a short stint um, at uh, the San Francisco Chronicle and worked at the Daily Oklahoman. Um, I did a stint doing research for the Texas Tribune, but sort of my D.C. experience was um back in 2010, uh, helping National Journal cover midterms and doing that from the multimedia team. And then in 2012, uh, working with CQ on their legislative action team, covering congressional committees, um, sort of doing that on the ground um, markup coverage, very sort of traditional um, uh, CQ coverage as, as, we, as we would know it. And so I'm curious about this kind of group of journalists that are covering and in, in, in that same beat sort of as you are. How many of you were there? Is it a tight group? Is it a diverse group? You know, tell me a little bit about that kind of culture and that group of, of people who are really engaging with Congress on a day-to-day -day basis for the media. Yeah, no, uh, it's... It's, it's been a pleasure at this point in my career to now st continue to stay connected and to reconnect with those folks who I worked with and looked up to as a, as a young um, budding reporter or a young scholar. Um, and so much of what I experience continues to be um, sort of that same culture that there's, regardless of the 
competitive nature of journalism. I think there's a real identity um, for those folks who cover Congress um, doing it collectively. For instance, during the COVID-19 crisis, um, they especially uh, work together um, to, to try to cover an institution when um, at various times it was not a safe place to be, or at least recommended um, to be. And so who covers Congress and what that looks like has changed over time. As our media landscape has changed, right, it's less stringers for nat stringers for local papers or stringers for McClatchy, Hearst, et cetera, and more the influence of folks like BGov, Politico, um, EE, things like that, where the landscape of who covers Congress has changed over time. And so inevitably, that'll have changes as to how people cover Congress. But I think there are also changes that are really good in the sense that there's a lot more diversity in the types of people that cover Congress. Um, it's no longer strictly this good old boy society that sits outside Tip O'Neill's door, right? There's a, there's a greater diversity of the folks that who are allowed and accessible in those spaces. And so I think that's a, a, a real hallmark to sort of the, the living and breathing nature of our political institutions, both sort of formally Congress, but also more infant, in, informally the media who cover it. Absolutely. So interesting. So in, in in a sense, you started off in this comms area yourself, right? And then later on, your your academic focus is also related to comms. And I think your first big piece of work, it seems to me, or you can correct me if I'm wrong, is really around this Senate, the Senate itself and how it's communicating in particular via one channel, which is uh, Twitter. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about, you know, why did you choose this project? What questions did you ask and what did you find? Right. So I, again, came to academia from journalism and Twitter was increasingly a place where I went for news and a place where I went for information. So when I got to grad school, where I began this project ever so many years ago, um, when I told people that I was interested in it, they sort of looked at me like I had two heads because they're like, well, yeah, we know this exists, but we don't really use it in this space and we don't really know how to think about it. Um, so, uh, I mean, I'd forever told people that I was going to find a way to merge my interests in politics and communication. And so I managed to do that, um, but do that in a way that was uh, somewhat unique at the time because there hasn't been, still to this day, I would argue probably not, um, a lot of attention on how members of Congress um, sort of communicate publicly, but increasingly through new digital channels. And, and since the time I started working on this, about 2012 or so, in a in Congress at least these days, Twitter has been the primary vehicle for a lot of both policy and political information um, that moves in and around our political institutions. And so thinking about that, I was interested in if this is a regular form of communication, we should, how we understand Congress should be reflected um, reflected in that. And so a lot of how, how we understand Congress sort of behavior comes from legislative introductions or messaging on the floor or constituent communication, sort of these more traditional facets that I think we we understand much more so than we how we understand communication or sort of layered on that digital behavior. And so I had, I don't think it's all that novel necessarily, but uh, the idea that using those communications should be able to convey information about not only what members or what senators are doing um, with their time, but also what are their policy priorities 
um, and how are they positioning themselves within the institution, um, but also sort of more broadly within the political landscape, right? There was this initial conversation with folks about, you know, what is Twitter and who is the audience, right? Is this just a new form of constituent communication? Um, is this going to give me something that I didn't already have, right? In newsletters or mailers or sort of our more traditional forms of constituent communication. But what we really saw um, and what I thought was really novel was you have a slightly different constituency on Twitter, right? It tends to be more elite focused. It tends to be journalists. It tends to be special interests, insiders. And so people often say uh, Twitter is not real life. And to a certain extent, I, I accept that premise, but it has very real world implications. And so if we consider that um, a fundamental part of what they do and sort of that signaling um, that should be able to tell this, tell us something about the type of representatives we have and what they value and how they see themselves within our uh, political landscape. And so I turned that project into a book that uh, was published last year, or I guess 2021, um, that looked at a couple of years of Senate communications, primarily on Twitter, to understand how members were positioning themselves, what kind of reputations they were building, um, and trying to create some sort of typology for how senators, um, and I think it's ex it can be extended uh, beyond just the Senate, either to the House or um, sort of local politics, but thinking about what they use Twitter for and sort of what that can tell us about them and give us a sense of what their style of representation is, right? So for example, um, someone like Senator Murkowski from Alaska, we would not expect her to be hyper-partisan. We would not expect her to be um, very much tapped into political um, battles. She's not gonna wade in to every, um, political crisis that comes onto the Hill, given sort of the nature of who she is, who she represents, and sort of her political reputation. And you see that borne out in the way that she communicates and the way she works, or I should say the way her office communicates digitally. And so it it gives you some sense of who these people are, right? And when you start reading, I think I read probably 180,000 tweets by members of the Senate, and you start to know who they are, who they think they are um, very intimately um, and start to think, okay, if this is who they see themselves as, if this is who they want to project themselves as, um, this tells us something really important about not only who they are, but where they may be potentially going or what they're going to prioritize during their time in office. So maybe I can ask a few basic questions before we go into some of the details of that. So you know, 100 senators. And the, the time that you were surveying was what what period of time? Um, The 2013 and 2015. Okay. So still relatively earlier in the Twitter right. um, dominance of the political dialogue, I guess you could call it, uh, at least among certain groups. So I'm curious about, you know, of the 100 senators, how many were actually tweeting? Were all of them doing it or was it a subset? Yes. Yes. So as of uh, 2013, um, after the end of 2012, every senator at that point, um, to varying degrees of reliability, was on Twitter and was actively using it. Um, the uh, Some of my recent work uh, has focused on just how, just how that process happened and 
there were many years practically between 2008, 2010, and before where staffers were simply pleading with their bosses saying, you know, I know you've never sent an email, but you really need to be on Twitter, right? And it's a question of, well, why? What am I doing? But I think the particularly 2008 and 2012 elections really showed um, what the capacity for digital can be. And a lot of the digital and Twitter behavior in Congress, um, not just specific to the Senate, is often a reflection of what's been tried and done on the campaign as well. Um, and so at that point, you at least, and the reason I picked 2013 is you have consistency across the Senate. And even by 2015, it's certainly um, sort of ingrained into their norms and behaviors. So they all had an account. What was the frequency distribution of how many tweets they did per day or per year or whatever? Right, right. So on the low end, you had someone like Senator Nelson from Florida who was not, and his staff were not active on uh, social media. And that's that's somewhat to be expected. A senior senator um, doesn't would not skew uh, in the demographic that you would think. But then you have people, right, like continuing today, Senator Grassley, who is very active on Twitter and is happy to share the 99 counties of Iowa and updates on corn season or someone like Bernie Sanders, who's made so when, a lot of investments. So when um, you say active, the, what do you mean? Like how many times per day is the is it Multiple times. I would say uh, some people were at that point at least daily. And then you had people that were two or three times a day at that yeah. point, depending on what they were doing, right? Unless they were doing some sort of ask me anything, and then you would get 5, 10, 15 a day. But sort of at that point, we definitely were talking about multiple times a day. And were the senators tweeting themselves, or is this a comms person who's doing it for them? This is primarily a comms person. So the way I like to think about this is if we think about Senate offices as firms or enterprises, right, there is a mission that everyone is there to serve. And so regardless of its, of if of if it's the member or a comms director, press secretary, digital director, um, you're going to have variation in who's actually sending those messages and who's approving them. Um, but primarily it's staff, right? So we can think off the top of our head a number of people who do this on their own. Chris Murphy, Brian Schatz, um, who tend to uh, um, sometimes by force take the helm of their Twitter account, much to the chagrin of their staff. But uh, for the most part, the average senator doesn't have um, doesn't have regular um, control over their um, Twitter account um, just because simply it's it's not easy. Right. Like we initially thought this was a task that interns could do, but it turns out that that it's it's a lot more important than that. And did would they sign off on it before it went out or would it go out without their signing off? So there's varying so there's varying levels of involvement, right? Sim similar to how you have some members who are very involved in their press releases or the language that goes out. You have members who want to have an eye on everything. And those offices will have approvals processes that are six, seven, eight people long. Um, and then you have some members who have a certain level of trust with either their comms director or a chief of staff. And unless there's something big going on, for instance, you know, the Dobbs decision this summer, very few senators said anything without making sure they knew what the language was going to be. Um, but sort of for your routine commentary, um, that usually doesn't get um, a close read by a member. Um, if they do, it's just 
you know, making sure there's, there's not an error or, you know, the, the sense of the office is correct. And the tweets themselves, you know, do they fall out into very particular categories? Uh, can you talk yes. through the, con now that we move into the content, so what did you find yeah. on the content itself? So, uh, the tweets fall into three, I would say three primary categories, um, with, about two thirds of all Senate tweets uh, dealing with policy. And then you have another subset of tweets that deal with local or constituent issues. And then another percentage of your tweets that deal with politics, right? Now these aren't mutually exclusive. You can do both, right? You can talk about why democratic inaction on inflation is bad and you can deal with policy and politics at the same time, right? You can talk about why, um, small business support is good for your community. So you can do policy and local issues at the same time. But for most people, policy, constituent issues, and politics sort of encapsulates everything they do, aside from, you know, happy birthday messages. And isn't it great that it's Cinco de Mayo? Um, but, and we would think, and most of the stuff we see on cable news tends to be politics, and a lot of us would assume that that's the lion's share of what actually happens. Um, but it turns out that politics, at least during this period, um, and even extending into the first year of the Trump presidency, the the lion's share of politics is only somewhere between 10 to 15 percent of what actually gets shared in a Senate Twitter setting, um, whereas most of it, I would say, anywhere from 60% to about two thirds is policy relevant. So for someone who is in a public policy school and has public policy entrance, that's very reassuring that to a certain extent, um, regardless of what gets covered or what a journalist may retweet, it has some foundation in public policy. Um, it's not just, you know, presidential, you know, slander, and it's not just uh, partisan um, bickering. There is there is some policy component to that. Um, and then sort of constituent issues or local issues being somewhat secondary. Um, and I would imagine, and I haven't looked at it closely, but I imagine as the professionalization of Twitter has, has gotten better, that sort of community local constituent piece has probably fallen some, just because we know that that's not that's not who's on Twitter and that's not who that audience is. And over time, staff and members have gotten better at understanding who their audience is across different platforms. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the audience. You mentioned it's more of a professional audience than it is really a home audience or a constituent audience. How did you figure that out? And has it changed till now? So I think part of that came from the fact that um, you messaged to the people that you intend to engage with. And so some of that was reflected in the policy. I think the biggest um, sort of window into that behavior was the work that I'm doing now on digital norms in Congress. Um, so uh, to, to get a sense of what digital and Twitter behavior looks like, I decided that I needed to go back into the institution. And my project over the last uh, two and a half years has been to do just that, talking to the folks that are actually in charge of these processes. So talking to reporters, talking to communications directors and digital directors to understand how do they do their job, um, what influences the way they do their job, and how has that changed over time. 
And by working with the people on the ground, I think at this point I've talked to 175 people um, to really get a sense of what what those norms look like. And they confirm that, you know, for a lot of those, that digital messaging, primarily Twitter, it's it's journalists. It's people that are going to retweet and repost their con content. Now, we could have a long conversation about sort of who indirectly gets those messages, right? Like, do those end up trickling down? Who do, Who is the audience for a journalist? But um, if you talk about sort of the primary direct audience, most of the time it's within the beltway and primarily journalists or people who have a platform to um, amplify their message further. And just to clarify, when you talk about their Twitter handles or whatever, is it their Senator XYZ handle or is it their personal handle that they carried over from the campaign and then they kept it going while they were in office? Right. And so there are different rules around those. Primarily what I'm interested in is their Senator XYZ handle, right? Their their uh, their voice as a member of a governing body, right? There's so much, uh, so much research, I would argue much more research on the campaign and how people behave on campaigns. And we think about social media behaviors often in terms of campaigns or how they behave individually. And some people maintain three different accounts, an individual and then a campaign and a government account. Um, some people just do a campaign account and a government account. Um, but primarily for my entrance, it's how do you perform and how do you present yourself as an elected official? Got it. And, th and there's no restrictions around the way they use it, like the Frank? Um, so there are some restrictions as far as theoretically how you're supposed to behave and sort of what you can do electioneering versus other things, um, right? Like if you think about the differences in Twitter from a campaign to governance, um, there's certainly a, a, a how do you fundraise, right? Component to that, that isn't present for in governance. Um, and to a certain extent, there are rules and norms around it, but as we've sort of um, sort of been having these broader conversations about Congress recently, um, how effective are rules and norms? And with if the only threat of um, punishment is a potential ethics violation, if someone reports you. Um, so there's a lot of leeway there about what that looks like, um, thinking about what can you do sort of on government property and what can you not, right? What constitutes a member actually using um, their own account for their own purposes versus simply hitting send on a tweet? Um, so there's a lot of variation, um, but uh, but sort of, again, primarily my interest is a somewhat more constrained set of um, government-specific messaging. So let's go back to what you mentioned about the policy communications. You know, what was the nature yeah. of these policy communications? Was it I support Bill X or I support issue X or I'm against issue X or we need an amendment? You know, what what did they yes. what was the nature of it? Right. So it it covers a broad umbrella, right? So I would say a number of them are you know, Senator X and I are introducing this legislation. Let me tell you about it. It accompanied often a press release. Um, early Twitter was very, um, hey, we're doing this press release. Let's do a tweet with it um, before uh, they realized that that might not be the best way to engage an online community. Um, so a lot of it is I'm doing this. Uh, there's a committee meeting. Uh, we're having a markup. Um, we're voting. This is coming up for um, 
coming up for a vote. This is how I voted. Some of that. Um, but there's also, it's very clear that members have their own priorities outside of what's on the legislative calendar that they will aggressively comment on. Uh, so, uh, for example, uh, Senator Gillibrand out of New York, um, regardless of whether or not it's on the agenda, has always been very vocal about uh, support for um, sexual assault victims in the military, and so pursues that agenda both sort of through her traditional congressional capacity, but also digitally, right? You have people who, if they've sponsored legislation, they will continue that regardless of the legislation's status. Um, and then you have people who are from different regions, right, that are going to be um, very vocal on specific issues. So if you think about senators from Western states, things like public lands, water rights, grazing rights, things like that, where they know they have a reputation. And so they message on policy that's going to bolster that reputation. Um, so some of it is directly tied to sort of legislative behavior, and some of it is going to be directly tied to their own uh, policy priorities. And then some of it, I would say the sort of the third bucket is what I would call news of the day. Um, things happen, disasters, um, court decisions, um, you know, no one can get Taylor Swift tickets. And so we're going to have a discussion about uh, Ticketmaster and things like that. So there are inevitably sort of what some people call the surprise box, right? That you never know what's going to come up, but at some point you have to say something or you feel this is in your, this is in your wheelhouse. This is in sort of your own policy portfolio. You have to say something. Um, and so I would say it sort of falls into those three buckets as far as the type of policy communication they engage in. So I'm curious about their approach to uh, either communicating outwards or getting communication inwards, right? So are they are all these communications sort of like broadcast or are they try to be interactive? Like, are they a call to action for people to do something? Like if I read any of these policy tweets, do I just know that he's working and his intention is to let me know that he's working hard on X, Y, or Z? Or is there something... Is there a category of like, he wants me to do something, he wants me to write a letter, he wants me to come out and protest, he wants me to do something, or she? Right. So for the government accounts, I would say it's much more information sharing. Mm -hmm. um, there is some literature that suggests that, you know, if 30 constituents tweet at a member, they're at least likely to notice that or pick up that. So there is some sort of interactivity there. Um, but I think the the initial idea, and this sort of is traditional to a lot of social media work, if we think back to um, sort of initial intersections with social media and politics, I think the best example is the Arab Spring, where we saw the power of um, technology and a group of motivated individuals um, and how that could be used in a more, for lack of a better word, democratizing fashion. But it turns out what we see in Congress really isn't that. There, there's not a lot of interactivity. Most interactivity, if you do have it on social media, um, is across Facebook, um, where you might do more Facebook town hall, do some sort of live webcast. Um, but Twitter specifically doesn't provide really the capacity to do that. Um, so you may have some interaction, but that's not primarily um, 
the the vehicle for that. So it's much more information sharing and much more information tracking, right? We don't have as much uh, research on this, but um, based on my conversations and the work that I'm doing now, a lot of what they use it for is simply to track information, right? If we think back to, um, and I apologize for taking you back there to March 2020, when we were all trying to figure out what are we doing in the midst of a global health crisis, Twitter was the first place that we found out what the Senate was going to do. Mitch McConnell sent out a tweet that they were going to stay in stay in session. And that was the first place anyone heard. It hadn't gone through the Copeland. No one got an email. Certainly no one got a fax. And so it was a function of where is the institution going? And so not only is it a, a mechanism for sharing information, but also for a lot of staffers, both in comms or in policy, or, or doing constituent or casework, it's figuring out, okay, what's the institution doing today? And uh, what should I be prepared for, regardless of if you're a staffer, or a journalist, or a professor like me? So it's, so I guess there's an assumption there that other senators are reading other, uh, other senators' tweets. Yes, um, at the very least, uh, senator staff are reading other senator staff tweets. And I think, and you see that when it comes to collaborations, oftentimes um, you'll see two senators team up on something or they'll do a, a press piece uh, together. And it's like, oh, well, that doesn't make any sense. Why Why are those two senators teaming up on this? And well, it's like, oh, well, it turns out, you know, that that senator plays basketball with that chief of staff. And so a lot of that actually happens and sort of that collaboration happens at the staff level, right? And you can't actually get that from Twitter. But if you go back into the institution and have those conversations with people, some of that uh, becomes a lot more clear. And what about the follower distribution of the different senators, you know, is does everybody at least get followed by everyone, you know, all the other senators and their staffs, or do some people have one follower and others have millions? You know, how is it breakdown? Yes. So it's it's extremely variable, right? Like so you can imagine um the late Senator McCain had a had a massive following because he ran for the president, right? Any senator who is even suggested or hinted at a run for the presidency has a has an outsized following compared to, you know, the the average or junior senator from Midwest State X. Um, but it just, and it also depends on sort of, is that a senator who is interested in investing the time into communication? Some people don't. There are some communications directors that will admit that it was clear that their boss and the rest of the staff had no interest in what they were doing communications wise. It wasn't it wasn't a priority and it probably doesn't remain so, but they do it because it's a function of how information moves in the institution. Right. And so some of that is reflected in follower counts. Um, Less so on the Senate side, but on the House side, um, traditionally, there's been a lot of emphasis in growing follower accounts. So for years, both on the Republican and House side, uh, or Republican and Democratic side, uh, so for example, uh, Hoyer's office for years had hosted a competition to see over the summer who could grow their social media followings faster, you know, who could grow more followers on YouTube or on Twitter or on Facebook. And there's an incentive there to do so because a belief that that more is good and creating um, uh, a, a larger following is is politically um uh, or normatively a good thing to do. Now we can have debates about whether that's actually true, but there's been real incentive from the institution and from party 
in leadership to grow those those follower accounts, regardless of you know who those people are or are those quality follows necessarily. So how big was it back then in terms of the distribution, like like some of the better ones or some of the larger followers? Yeah, so like for, yeah, so I mean we're talking about uh, a couple million people um, for people who have large followings, um, but then you have people that you know maybe only have particularly house members, maybe they only have 60, 70,000 followers. Um, and sort of there are people who put in a lot of effort to try to grow that. Um, but I mean, I think, for example, even, you know, so Hoyer's office, one of the leaders in digital, you know, party leader for years, I don't think he ever had more than 200,000 followers for his in government office, right? Like, again, campaigns can be a whole different ball game, right? Um, you know, but uh, you have extremely variable follower accounts and how, and you know, how, how members think about those follower accounts and how they use them is are extremely variable too. And can they, they take those accounts with them after they're out of office or is it tied to the office? Is it an office account or is it their personal account they happen to use for the office? So that's a very good question. Um, and so my understanding is you can do a one-time import, um, but you can't import from a government account to a campaign account. Um, so I think it's possible to go the other direction, but I'm not, I don't think you can, you can take it back out if that, if that makes sense. But can they still um, run the Twitter account after they leave office or is it over? They don't have access to it. So I, I, it's unclear. Um, so former uh, House member John Yarmouth just uh, retired and remains uh, tweeting. And so I'm, I haven't looked to see if it's possible to take that account with you. I know it's it's one of those things that, um, again, there are probably rules around it, but sort of how clear those rules are and how enforceable those rules are, um, are less clear. Um, I can tell you, I had been collecting data um, for folks like um, when they were in the Senate, folks like Kerry or Dement, and it would their stuff would still populate. So uh, I think sometimes uh, those accounts get carried. But again, those were from 2012 and before. And again, where we were 10 years ago versus where we are now, those are two very different places. Yeah, I'm just curious because it's an asset that you can build up over time and whether you can carry that beyond, right. the, beyond right. the, the, I mean, the official account might be something that they'd want to invest in at the time and then keep with them. Right, right, right. Well, great. Well, you know, any other interesting tidbits on the on the tweet side before we move on to some more general question about comms? No, I mean, I think it's uh, I I got asked years ago, what are you going to do um, if Twitter ever goes away? And over the last year, it's been a an interesting space to to really have that question answered, um, but yet to be uh, or sort of question be asked, but yet to be answered. Um, I think in November we were all sort of prepared for the worst, and the question was, you know, what's next? But the answer I always gave was until the journalists leave. Um, nothing's going to change. And thus far, right? Like I, I think people would say like, maybe it's, it's, it's changed in some capacity. Um, it's a slightly different space, but it's still a primary space where information is exchanged and where um, reporters and members of Congress and their staff um, 
sort of collectively go. Um, and and thus far, we haven't seen a replacement. Excellent. Well, that leads us nicely to the general commons question. So, I, you know, I understand your next kind of work is more broadly around comms uh, right. in, in, in Congress. And I guess the first question I, I guess I have is, you know, for the Congress itself, you know, every member and every uh, senator has their own comms, you know, group, a couple people at least, right? And then also the committees have their own comms people, and then the leadership has their own comms people. Now, so not all these people are doing the same thing. Can you give us kind of a what's the landscape of who's on the Hill actually doing comms? What are they actually trying to do, and how are they doing it? Right. So there are a lot of people doing comms on the Hill, and I think this was the um, sort of first hurdle I had to convince uh, those who study Congress and those who know about Congress that you are missing at least a third of going on on the Hill on a regular basis, because there are a lot more people doing comms um, than we than we actually realize, and in very different capacities, right? Doing uh, communications in the House is very different than doing communications in the Senate, right? And doing communications in a member's office is very different than doing communications um, for a committee. They all have different audiences, different sets of constraints, and different budgets that shape how and when and what people are going to talk about. And so I think one of the things that becomes clear when you do this work is just how central it is to how Congress Congress behaves but how very little we understand about that behavior, right? Like I had a conversation with a former press secretary and I asked her, so how do you think about your principal? How do you try to echo the voice of your principal? How do you work with your principal? And she said, most people, well, she said, one, no one's ever asked me that question before. And most people really just don't understand Um how she does her job. Um, she's like, my parents don't understand what I do on a regular basis. And most people assume that we, that, that comms folks provide some sort of supportive role to the policy folks doing sort of the primary work within an office. And I think the first job that I had was to sort of dissuade people of that notion that uh, a lot of the work, the good work that gets done in Congress um, is often a combination and collaboration between policy and comms staff to put together um, packages, toolkits, and information um, that is both like um, policy sound and also uh, performatively sound as well. And some people do that just like policy. Some people do that really well um, and put a lot of effort into that and other people, not so much. Um, and I think the other thing that's important to note about this is we've been having these debates, right, about congressional capacity. How does Congress invest in itself? How does Congress modernize? And inherent to that discussion is how does Congress move information through the institution? And currently, that's often the purview of communications staff and thinking about how we not only invest in our policymaking capacity, but how do we invest in our communications capacity in a world where we've elevated communications to a point um, that it's important and inherent to who a member is and how they want to behave in office. 
So let's talk a little bit about the channels that these different communications groups use. Obviously, as you said, they're going to have different audiences potentially, and that's going to impact the channels that they use to reach those audiences. Can you kind of walk through a communications um, team at any of these levels of the organization? Yeah. What channels are they using? Yes. Obviously, you focused on Twitter, but there are others. What are they using and right. how much are they spending time on these various channels? Right. Um, so part of the sort of choice and platform that gets used is a function of one's staff. Um, how much of an investment are they making? Right. So you have on the house side, um, a comms shop for particularly a junior member can be one person. Maybe if you're lucky, a press assistant or a press secretary that also has um, issue area expertise that sort of sort serves a dual role. And sort of when you have low capacity for comms in terms of staff, that limits sort of the platforms that you can be on and the reach you can have, right? So I think inherent to most offices is Twitter. They have a Facebook account. Um, a number of them increasingly, uh, I would say more than half, have Instagram accounts, uh, YouTube accounts where they at least upload videos um, and sort of hit sort of the basic functions of what an office needs in terms of communication capacity, right? They're issuing press releases. Um, some offices do newsletters, some don't. Um, some offices uh, have people writing speeches. Um, and sort of all of that falls under the purview of a, theoretically, of a comm shop. Layered onto that, that right, is the the implication that you also have digital needs that may be separate from traditional um, communication shop. So outside of reporter relations, press releases, speech writing, um, is this is having someone who is dedicated not only to social media, but to photography, um, video, creating content um, in ways that certainly is very different than even when I started doing this research in 2012, but certainly different than it even was just a few years ago. And uh, while both, I would say, the House and the Senate um, engage in sort of that digital production, it's much more prevalent on the Senate side simply because they have the resources to do so. So while you may have one to two people doing comms in a House office, you're likely to have at least three to five people doing comms in a Senate office. And that allows for greater digital capacity, and that allows for more platforms, and someone who does have expertise in social, in addition to someone who may have expertise in video, photography, lighting, et cetera. Um, and so at that point, then you can say, okay, well, I'm on all the, the basic platforms, right? I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, um, and I'm doing so in an effective way. But sort of the next step is, okay, I'm on the platform, but how am I using it? Am I able to create my own in-house graphics? Am I able to produce content that's likely to go viral or get more clicks rather than just sort of basic updates of what my boss is doing, right? And that's something that you see, particularly at the committee level, because they don't have to sort of respond to the news of the day like a member's office does and in the Senate because you have theoretically more resources than you would in, on the House side. And on the Senate side, you have folks like Senate Democratic Media Center who can help you provide some of that digital content. Um, so 
for platforms, right, it's the, it's using sort of those common platforms that sort of lay persons use on a regular basis. But the big difference is how they use it and being able to use sort of digital content on those platforms in really effective and authentic ways. And, you know, to a certain extent, again, it comes down to resources and budget and sort of how a member wants, wants to allocate um, toward those priorities. So do they, they don't cover the emails then or the, or the mails to constituents, the, the communications office? No, that's going to be a separate, that's done separately. Again, sort of, you may have a all hands on deck, particularly in a house office. Um, there may be more collaboration, right? If you're getting a bunch of uh, constituent feedback that says, you know, we don't like this, think differently about this. I mean, inevitably that's going to maybe shape one would hope the way that you're going to message or what you're going to prioritize or how you're going to talk about an issue. Um, but that's usually thought of as a separate job. Got it. And how about the relationship with journalists? You know, I'm curious, and I'm sure that's changed over time, right? Where it used to be very important. Maybe now if you have direct channels, less important. Uh, but how does that work? Is it, you know, you, you try to line up interviews or you try to reach out with your press releases, you know, how does that dynamic actually play out? So it's, again, going to be extremely variable. And I think that there's variation, particularly, again, across the House and Senate. And I'll probably say the word resources more time than anyone probably needs to. But alas, here we are. Um, because some offices are angling for coverage. And so it is a function of how do you appeal to journalists? How um, are you the first person to make a comment because they'll want to go as fast as possible? There's incentive there to being first or second um, because uh, they can run with that quickly rather than being the 25th person to say, this is my statement on X. Um, uh, but then there are also times when it's, um, particularly on the Senate side, you have a deluge of requests, right? And then it becomes a filtering operation, right? How do you filter the requests? And so... Um, think that part has been pretty consistent, right? There's always been a press presence on Capitol Hill and that part has remained consistent. Email remains, you know, what it was. Like if you shoot someone an email, there's a good chance that they just don't respond back. Um, and maybe you, maybe you do get through. Yes, maybe you can go through Twitter now. Um, but also, you know, having someone's phone number and being able to call them or text them um, is equally important. And that sort of lives outside of a, a social media space. Um, so when people ask, you know, well, what if Twitter goes away? Well, I mean, again, it's a fundamentally dif different institution if, if sort of nothing replaced it. But to a certain extent, press relations uh, um, can be somewhat divorced from digital in the sense that, you know, it's not that they're all now just tweeting at one another and that's how they're getting their their information it's okay i have this source or i built up this source um and then based on what they tell me then i turn to twitter and report that information um so press management uh if you ask 10 different comms directors they'll probably give you 10 different answers um and there have been some press folks that have been on the hill for years and they know Senate procedure better than anyone. And then there are newer folks that have to build those relationships. And just like uh, sort of staff, 
they carry those relationships through them and there's um, cachet that comes with those and it builds their portfolio as a staffer. And I think the same is true for a reporter who comes in at the right time and uses those connections um, to sort of build contacts and be able to become a better reporter because of it. So, you know, we talked primarily about comms out outbound function for the office, right? Or for the uh, for the committee. What about inbound? Like, you know, who's reading all the tweets and all the news or paper articles and watching the news and summarizing that in a way that's relevant for the member or sharing that internally? Is that also the comms? They're kind of doing this monitoring function and how much resource does that take versus the outbound? Yes, yes. So um, a lot of monitoring, I would say. Um, and the monitoring function goes beyond a comms department. Um, it's variable by office, but I would say the lion's share of the office is going to be at least attuned to what's going on. Um, a number of policy folks say, you know, yeah, I, I tracked her just to see what's going on. You know, I get my floor updates from Twitter or there are some policy folks that, that say, you know, we tracked Twitter, we stayed on there for a while. But after a while, we had to make an announcement that like, we can't do this anymore because it's not sustainable and it's affecting the way we behave, right? And so I thought that was really powerful because one, it suggests that, you know, simply tracking that information can A, affect the way an office behaves. And two, um, you have very uh, diverse roles and staff in an office actually paying attention to it. Um, I, I often argue that regardless what position you have within an office, um, dependent upon what's happening in your comp shop and what's happening on Twitter, um, it will affect your day. Because I say, if the other side of the room is on fire, it makes for adverse working conditions. And we have to keep in mind, these are small offices, right? So most comps directors are sitting next to um, an LD or someone um, in a, in a policy space. And so it's not like they're closeted off in their own room doing, doing secret strategic communications that the policy shop has no idea what's going on, right? These are um, very collaborative workspaces often, or at least the, the best ones are. Um, and sort of thinking about um, what makes for a good relationship is sort of this understanding of uh, what each person brings to the table. And I think one of the things policy staff try to do, especially, is understand what's going on and what's coming across the desk of a comms person so that they can say, oh, yep, I know that thing got released. We're no, I know we're going to need to make a statement. I'm happy to, to, to pull up um, some language or pull up what we've been doing in this issue area. Um, and so... I think there's a general sense that everyone needs to be aware of what's going on. And so it's not so much that they um, are tracking Twitter as, as much as a comps person would, but there's a general sense that they need to be in the know as, as well. Um, and they're not just immune from the, the, the congressional Twitter ecosystem, if you will. Yeah. I mean, that's a, an interesting concept is like how much is really strategic in, in terms of communications versus just responding to some, some trash online. Right. And does that really, or, you know, focused on the ultra short term to the detriment of the functioning of the institution. Right. Everyone, every office has their own um, measure for when to let the pitch go by. At what point do you say uh, that's a debate I need to be a part of? And at what point do you say that's not, that's not, 
that's not our values. That's not relevant to us. We're just going to let them have that fight and we move on. Right. And I think, um, there's often this push to, to want to be involved. There's incentives to being online. And we've seen sort of what it means to be a successful member of Congress slightly change over time in this media world, where it's not just putting in the time on a committee to be a policy expert, and it's not just doing favors for party leaders to sort of grow your presence there or, you know, like, going home all the time and to grow your relationship at home. But there's sort of this new path that sort of digital allows for a national or a digital savvy reputation um, that really hasn't played out yet. And we really don't know the impacts of it um, such that, you know, can you can you base your political power off your digital constituency or off your digital brand? Right. And we've seen some of that on the the progressive wing of the Democratic Party sort of being able to use that. Um, and we've seen that um, to a certain extent as well uh, on the more conservative side of the Republican Party. Like, can people who may not have the political or policy power of some sort of wield digital power in ways that sort of grow their overall power um, within the institution? And so I think long term, that'll be one question that remains unanswered as far as what what digital or what com sort of in this current climate can really buy you in terms of um, what it means to have power in Congress and what it means to be successful as a member. Did you ever, you know, measure the frequency or interactions or the so-called success on the comm side and compare that with success you know, say in legislative effectiveness, like Volden Weissman's score or someone. Yes. yes. Know, have, and, and, and what's yes. the result of that comparison? Uh, so it turns out legislative effectiveness is related to uh, communications at zero level. Um, there is nothing significant um, uh, as far as how or how frequent uh, members use Twitter or how they communicate um, to the way in which uh, they um are effective lawmakers. Mm -hmm. Colleagues and I have tried every which way to find a possible connection to uh, communications behavior and legislative effectiveness. And I think it's a function of the fact that the ways in which you, you use communication is so variable. And it gets back to the point I made about my work in the first book, about how you can use it across different typologies, right? You can use it for constituent issues. You can use it for policy. You can use it for politics. And because it has this broad capacity to do a lot compared to effectiveness, which is a measure of policy capacity for the most part and lawmaking capacity, um, you're, you're sort of measuring two different things. One captures broader legislative behavior um, and one captures lawmaking behavior and those things are related right and so we do see some connection um to sort of the foundations right like those with more resources seniority or those with specific policy interests may behave a little bit differently but when it comes to strictly looking at effectiveness or sort of um uh, measures of good public policy none of that gets captured um, on social media. And so it's interesting that 
Um, we do see different behaviors, of course, but none of those are traditionally correlated with lawmaking behavior, which, you know, you can, you can come at this in a, in a number of ways. Like one, it's like, okay, well, this is completely uncorrelated and it, and it has no effect. Like, is this actually a, a good that they're doing this behavior or is it uh, sort of um, a question of, of mit- mismatch priorities and that you're asking people who are um, good at one thing to to sort of orient themselves in another space? And should we even expect that to begin with? Um, I think it's fascinating that there's no correlation whatsoever. Um, I think a lot of people would assume that it's negative, right? That those who can't, those who can't lawmake communicate, right? But that doesn't actually end up being the case. That's very interesting. And what about the correlation on re-election? Is there a high correlation between communication and re-election or no? Um, a little bit less so, right? You could, I mean, we could talk about recent elections, uh, uh, sort of the the loss of someone like Madison Cawthorn, who, I mean, we could argue that there were a number of faults uh, uh, in his time as a as a lawmaker, um, but uh, and sort of his capacity both as a communicator or as a as a lawmaker. But it's certainly, um, we see differences, but it's not that. Um, those who are more electorally um, uh, or in safe seats are more likely to behave one way or the other, Um, with the exception being that um, if you are in a safe seat, you may be a little bit more political, right? Ted Cruz, for example, probably doesn't need to worry about losing his seat, and he can sort of say what he will um, uh, fairly fairly regularly. It doesn't strike me that Bernie Sanders is concerned with losing his seat anytime soon. Um, and so you do have members, uh, tend to be more moderate members, who um, are not necessarily more careful with what they say, but again, shift their priorities, right? You have rural Democrats who there aren't as many as there used to be, but are going to focus a lot more on constituent issues um, and sort of play less politics, be more careful about the policy that they engage with. For instance, this last year when we had the um, Dobbs decision and then the leak before, um, Senator Manchin did not say anything within 24 hours after that leak because nothing good was going to come from him saying anything. And so you do see um, a lot of a lot of careful concern um, that I think is very much election oriented and the notion that any of this is um, sort of altruistic and not re-election oriented is 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 a hard sell as well. So I don't know if there's anything else you want to mention about the structure of the comms and the future of comms on the Hill before we move into sort of a de- general capacity question on digital. No, I mean, I think. And this, it leads to capacity, right? We just went through uh, major party leadership changes, particularly for the Democrats in the House. And so a lot of the way comms and especially digital is supported within our chambers um, is directly related to party leadership. And so those are when whenever you have changes or whenever you have majority shifts, such that it affects committees, um, you also get a, a difference in a shift in how comms and digital are prioritized. So the things that I look forward to in a new Congress are sort of how are you how are you supporting communications efforts and what has changed in terms of the way that um, 
leadership or a new set of leaders think about comms and digital? Well, so this leadership in the in the members or the senators, you know, what's the relationship in terms of comms? You know, is it the leader tweets X and then everybody else retweets it or just redoes it in their own words? Or do they put rules out about what you should tweet and what you should not stick to the bullet points? You know, what what is that relationship? Um, so the relationship I would say that a leader has with each member is going to be somewhat different. Um, and so the notion that, that there are rules is there, there are no rules. Um, again, it's, 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 it's norms and suggestions. Um, so there are weekly meetings, uh, for comm staff, um, particularly leadership staff in terms of digital will meet weekly, um, to think about sort of what are we messaging on? How are we messaging about that? Um, so for instance, uh, under the Biden administration, folks from the White House, Schumer's office, Pelosi's office would regularly get together to talk about messaging strategy, what's going to be on the agenda and how to talk about it. Um, the things that I think is important to consider when thinking about the relationship between leaders and sort of your average um, office is in terms of uh, support training and coordination. Um, so there is some attempt at coordination in terms of this is let let us tell you what what we're interested in talking about. This is how we're going to talk about it, um, and here is some material that could be useful. Some people use that, but it turns out that a lot of people don't simply because what works in one house district is not going to work in another, right? Or what works in one in Maine may not be the right way to message to folks in New Mexico. So you have um, varying levels of uptake. Um, but it's sort of this this baseline uh, coordination effort, at least. Um, training, uh, particularly for digital, has increased, I would say, over the last uh, five years since that they need people who can do not just the ability to send a tweet, but they need people who can effectively take photo. They need people who can edit video. They need people you know, who know how to use Photoshop. And so creating um, a base of support and uh, retaining those folks, right? This gets to the larger problem of, you know, salaries in Congress and how do you retain, you know, strong and competent people? That's that's a problem that digital faces as well. I've talked to a number of comms directors who say, you know, I, I would like to hire someone from digital, but I just you know, given what I know I'm going to be able to offer, like I can't find someone with those skills who's also willing to work for X number of dollars. Um, so there's training to try to build sort of from within. It's a very slow process because traditionally most of the capacity in Congress for digital comes from outside the institution. So things like campaigns, um, journalists, film school, you know, having experience outside the institution that they then bring in. And then the other piece of this is simply resources. Um, so again, Senate has more than the House does, but providing people with toolboxes, toolkits, um, providing services, you know, do you need um, a bumper at the beginning of a video for some work that you were doing? Do you need us to clip something? Um, can we work together on this event? And so being able to provide that, I think is critical. And again, this happens across parties. It's a it's a shared burden that is bipartisan in the sense that both um, parties and across chambers want to be able to do good digital. They see it as important to their mission, um, but sort of how that gets provided and how that gets supported um, 
is often a function of leadership and sort of the resources that are available or at least made available. And so your opinion, there need to be more resources for, uh, you know, this kind of comms position or, I mean, I, I, my understanding is that it's grown over time. It's It's got more resources compared to the other areas like legislative uh, yeah, groups, et cetera. Yeah. So, I mean, whenever there's extra budget, it goes to comms or constituent service rather than legislation. So is your opinion still that they need more resources on a, on a per member basis or what, you know, where do you come in on this capacity question? Yeah. So I don't, I don't, I, I would argue that they do need more resources and that comms should be part of that capacity discussion. Right. Um, now sort of, how do we think about trade-offs is an important question. Where do those come from? And there is some evidence to suggest that, you know, if you do, if you do X, there may be trade-offs elsewhere. Um, but we also see that uh, a lot of this is member dependent, right? If your member is good at X, they're going to invest in that and they recognize the value in it. Um, do I think com comms comes at the cost of policy? I don't think that's a great idea. Do I think that it comes at, at the cost of casework? No, but sort of we have these conversations about how does Congress invest in itself? Um, how does Congress fund itself? And I think comms is part of that. And the reason I say that is sort of the ways in which comms have changed in the last 20 years, um, I would argue uh, far outpace the ways in which policymaking has changed, right? We have internet and digital and the ways in which, and the demands of digital and the ways in which they want to be present on digital are so very different than they were even 20 years ago because offices are now incentivized and encouraged to be content creative centers, right? This isn't just press management. This isn't just public relations. This is creative direction. It's art direction. It's their own PR shop. And to do that effectively, you have to have resources and you have to have skilled people in those positions. And if that's your expectation, I'm not saying it has to be, but assuming that continues and if that's your expectation, you have to fund it appropriately. And so I often say that the to do what it, they would like to do or to do what they would hope they could do, you would need uh, Senate funding in a in a House office, right? A House office that had three to five people doing that is probably what they would ideally want and be able to actually execute given what sort of the current set of expectations or ideals are. Um, now, is that a reality? I don't so, but sort of we've we've set ourselves up that this is what we want, right? We've seen the capacity of someone like AOC to effectively and authentically use digital in really smart ways. Um, but most members themselves can't do that. That's not inherent to who they are. And so then if you can't do that, then you have to pay for it. And that and that requires funds and people who do have the capacity to do, do that. And sort of that's um one of the reasons why I I think we we all again went into this and we saw the rise of folks like AOC or Chris Murphy and said, okay, digital's one way to sort of circumvent leadership. Digital can be one way in which you can grow power outside of that structure. But it turns out that the average member doesn't have that capacity. They're not digitally savvy. That's not, it doesn't come inherent to them. And so it turns out that they become even more dependent on leadership because they now, instead of just policymaking capacity, they also need digital and communication capacity in ways that they may not have actually needed it 20 years ago. 
Got it. Well, great. Well, you know, it's a very interesting area. And, uh, you know, I look forward to more of your research uh, on this space and to see where, where you think ultimately capacity needs to go for, for communications since uh, obviously it's changed a lot. But I think it's time for us to move on to our, uh, the common questions we ask all of our guests so we can later on com compare the answers. So are you ready for phase two? Oh, I think so. We'll see. <laughs> all right. So the first question here is, uh, what do you think congressional representation should mean? And by this, you know, are you a delegate person? Are you a trustee person? Um, do they represent everyone or just their primary constituents? You know, what, what where do you come down on that question? Oh, boy. So because I live in the digital space, I think um, what representation means today um, extends beyond their original voters. So, right, if, if you think about Fenno's original concentric circles about who your constituency is, um, I would build that outward, right? Because I think there's increasingly a digital or a national constituency that goes beyond um, sort of who's voting for you in your district or who's voting for you in your state. Um, and some of that's tied to, you know, how you build out your persona and how you build resources as well. Um, but I think we're also at a point where sort of what we value and how we see representation is somewhat in flux, because again, we don't know how this is going to play out. For a lot, again, from the campaign side, there's a belief that everyone has to have digital and everyone has to have social media. But there's also um, a sort of um, self-awareness that that in and of itself can't buy you an election, right? So that there's there's there are these moving parts and sort of what it means um, to represent and to do that well um, is increasingly complex, but we don't yet know sort of what share of the pie um, sort of these, these new behaviors should occupy. And so when it comes to what should representation mean, um, I think it's I think it's unclear and it's currently in flux. But particularly, this is, this is a question for you personally. So your personal judgment should the member represent everyone in their district, or it it sounds like you're implying they they should represent more than their district, uh, anybody who happens to follow them, or or is it you know I'm trying to get where who are the the real constituents of a representative? Is it their voters? Is it everyone in the district? Is it their wider media following? I mean, I think it should be who's in their district, but that's just not reality. So do I do I pick the unrealistic? Uh, you know, your voters should should be the people that actually your rep. You should represent the people that actually vote for you, or do you hold yourself to? It's a um, should question, so you can say whatever you like, whatever it should be. Okay, well then I I mean I, despite my appreciation for a digital constituency that that is very vast. Um, in a should world, I would say that some of those resources would get devoted to constituent service and it would be a very localized uh, ideal of representation. All right. And then in terms of how they're represented, you know, are you a person who thinks that the member should just reflect whatever those Twitter people are saying they should do, or should they make their own judgments uh, about what's in the best interest of those constituents? I think there's room for your own judgments, right? The uh, I think there's we we elect leaders not only because they're a warm body, because they have some sort of understanding and capacity. And I think judgment has a has a place to play because 
I don't have the capacity to pay attention. I mean, I study public policy and I don't have the capacity to under understand everything, nor do I have a staff. So I think there's a level of judgment that I would expect from, from my elected leaders. Great. So the next question is, how would your ideal Congress allocate its time? And by this, I mean, in DC versus at, at you know, the home district, you know, legislation versus tweeting. Um, and I think your answer would be interesting to think about how your perspective on home, you know, home district work, when there's a digital channel available, you don't even have to physically go to an, interact with the district. Right. Um, I think the ideal allocation um, is going to be a function of your district and what they expect um, and what you're actually capable of doing. And sort of if if your goal is impact, um, dependent on the type of district you're in or the type of state that you're in, actually being home um, may not actually do what you need for your constituents, right? If, if what your constituent needs is for you to, to pass a bill creating more capacity for small business, um, then walking in the local parade isn't actually going to do that. So I think it's very individual specific about, about ideal time. I mean, I would argue that the lion's share, again, I'm in public policy school, the lion's share of your time should be about public policy. But I do think that allows for collaboration with comm staff to elevate that policy agenda and to think critically about how you present yourself in that public policy space. So maybe I'll ask you a, a slightly different question then. How much should they spend their time on comms versus uh, legislative activity? So I guess the... Uh, I guess if there's an assumption that it's a trade-off and I'm not, I'm not necessarily sure it is, but I do think comms is at least a third of what you do, because if you do really good public policy, but if no one knows about it, I'm not so sure you're actually being successful as a member. Excellent. Um, next one is how should debate deliberation or dialogue occur or be structured in Congress? And by this, you know, should, should the committees be where all the dialogue happens? Should it be in clo behind closed doors? Should it be on the floor? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Since you've been in the committee rooms, you know, during these markups, you know, you probably have an opinion on that. Yeah. So again, the journalist background, like transparency, open meetings, there's, there's a, there's a vein through me that appreciates that. But I, at the same time too, I'm, I do understand from a negotiation standpoint that sometimes having every card on the table doesn't benefit the overall process, right? There is sometimes where having too many voices will slow and uh, be ineffective for a policy process. Um, we think about this from a policy standpoint in terms of uh, agenda setting control and sort of does it behoove you to limit the number of voices, right? Is it a good idea that, you know, Jake Sherman is sitting outside Pelosi's office and waiting for someone to to make a move and no one can have a, you know, a, a, not a clandestine, but right, no one can have an off the books meeting or it becomes a lot harder today. And I think both of those things can be true. I think there can be an effort um, to sort of give the give the information that's needed and be transparent about behavior. But I do think we benefit from a world in which um, people can make compromise and people can do so um, without uh, without needing everyone to know what everyone's doing at every at every moment in time. 
Excellent. So a journalist who still believes in privacy. Yes. For some <laughs> things, for some things. Um, great. So the next question is, what fundamental institutional improvement should Congress make within 50 years? Ooh. I mean, I would say self-funding such that it can actually, if it wants to be a digital community, if it wants to communicate in the way it says it does, then funding itself in ways that actually do that and retain the talent to do that effectively. Because if not, then you should get out of the game. Excellent. Um, next one is, what book or article most shaped your thinking with respect to congressional reform? Yes. So uh, Jim Curry's book from 2015, I believe, Legislating in the Dark, um, really affected the way in which I thought about the role of um, party leadership, because he tells a story about policy information and sort of how you have uh, power inequities between who has that and who doesn't. And as I was thinking about the work that I do in comps, it's a very similar story in the sense of not only is it a function of how policy information is shared, but also how comps and sort of information writ large moves. And so a lot of the work that I do now, if you take out the policy piece, it tells a similar story. And so that book, I keep, I always shift F and I always find something new and helpful when I, when I think about sort of the capacity of Congress and how we should be thinking about it. Great. Well, the last question is really about your future plans. What do you have, you know, coming up uh, in your research and uh, what can we look forward to? Yeah. So uh, my hope is to continuing finishing the next couple of chapters of this book project, which again, sort of tells the digital history and future of Congress. Um, and hopefully um, those, those come together over the next few months. Academic publishing is a long arc. Um, so, you know, you have to, you have to be in it for the long game. Um, but hopefully continuing that project and then spending some more time, uh, trips back to DC, um, to, to sort of build out this, this project that sort of really is it's, has, has taken on its life of its own of really understanding sort of the comms and digital side of the building and in ways that no one's really ever thought about before. Um, so I'm excited to see where that goes and then sort of make progress on this, on this second book project. Excellent. Professor Russell, thank you so much for your time. Best of luck with the work and uh, look forward to hearing more. Thank you so much for your time. It was great.